Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today I'm speaking with award-winning NPR host of All Things Considered, Ari Shapiro. He's now an author as well with his first book, The Best Strangers in the World, Stories from a Life Spent Listening. This instant New York Times bestselling memoir and essays covers a wide range of Shapiro's experiences, from reporting in war-torn countries to taking flights on Air Force One with President Obama. Today, we talk about the idea of media bias, how Ari thinks about writing questions, and hating books. Our book club selection for April is the poetry collection Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude by Ross Gay. We will be discussing the book on April 26th with Clint Smith. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in your show notes. If you love The Stacks and you want more of it, like our incredible community on Discord, our bonus episodes, and monthly meetups to discuss our book club picks, you must join The Stacks Pack on Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get all of that and more, and you get to know that you're a part of making this Black woman independent podcast run every single week week. Head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join. Shout out to some of our newest members of the stacks pack, Fawn Seibrand, Helen Kim, and Rachel Kramer Bustle. Thank you all so much. And of course, thank you to the entire stacks pack. And now it's time for my conversation with Ari Shapiro. All right, everybody, I'm very excited. I am sitting here today in real life, in person, across from my dining room table with the Ari Shapiro from All Things Considered. He's got a new book. It's called The Best Strangers in the World. Hi. Hi, I'm so happy to be here in beautiful, rainy Los Angeles with you. Yeah, so the weather is a really, it was cute in the beginning. I'm we from needed Portland. it for the drought. We live with this. I hate it's- it. Welcome to the life of Pacific Northwesterners. But I don't live in the Pacific Northwest. Do you see? Okay, this you is made the a choice. You had <laughs> expectations. They were not met. I get that. Yeah, someone yeah. was like, this is the deal that we made with the devil is to have the sun mm-hmm. if we choose to live in LA. In exchange for climate apocalypse exactly. and drought. Yeah. And yeah. instead, I'm getting Seattle vibes and I'm still in LA. Oh, but the super bloom when it comes is going to be intense. <sighs> I can't wait. It's going to be poppies all day. Okay, let's talk about the book. 30 seconds or so, give us sort of a rundown of what the book is. Well, over more than 20 years as a journalist, I have seen a lot of stories go by me, (laughs) and some of them have sort of snagged on my heart and shaped the person I am. And 
I realize that not only have the stories I've told shaped the storyteller that I am, but also the person I am shapes the stories I tell. I carry my identity, my history, my experience with me when I go out as a journalist. And so this book is sort of the two sides of that coin. And it's also an answer to a question that I've gotten a lot from friends over the years, which is how do you stay optimistic in the face of all the terrible things that are happening in the world, all the terrible things that we as journalists cover every day. And the stories in this book are in some way an answer to that question. Like these are the people who give me hope. These are the people who keep me optimistic. I love that. I have to be transparent. I was not raised as an NPR person. I that was is raised, okay. Well, I, I mean, I know it's okay, <laughs> <laughs> but I was not really familiar with your story. Uh-huh. And so reading the book, I was like, oh, I love this person. And I think for most people who read your book, they go in knowing you, having heard you in their ears all the time. And like, of course, I've heard some of your work, but I wasn't familiar with your whole backstory. Like I haven't been following you for years. And so I think that's maybe unique I, I'm really glad to hear that because I want the book to stand on its own two yeah. feet. I don't want it just to be an accompaniment to something that people hear who listen to NPR. I want it to be meaningful for people who don't listen to NPR, who don't follow the news, but who are curious about connection and human um, – like I, I want to get people out of their self-reinforcing bubbles – I want to make the foreign seem a little bit less strange. I want to talk about how we connect to one another as people who might on the surface appear to have a lot of differences, but actually fundamentally have much more in common. Yeah. You mentioned this from the beginning, talking about bringing your identity to your work and your work to your identity. And, you know, it comes up in a few parts in the book where you talk about being gay and covering stories and sort of this idea about bias and like, you know, there's my favorite essay is the one about your wedding and you talk about how before you went to City Hall in San Francisco to get married, you asked your boss if it was okay. Yeah, because it was really early in the days of the same-sex marriage debate and it was a huge battle in the culture wars and I felt like as a journalist, I was supposed to be narrating, not participating in those kinds of battles. Right, but so let me ask you this. How do you feel about it now? Like years on, because you know, I'm a black woman, you're a gay man. We bring our identities to everything that we do. We see the world through the lenses that we see the world. And I feel like, you know, you kind of get to this towards the end of the book where you bring up what Sam Sanders, who's my dear friend and your dear friend. Oh, and greatest. Love I love him. Sam. Yes. Um, but you bring up how Sam talks about like, you know, hard hitting journalism versus soft stories and, you know, the way that those things are basically couched along the lines of, are you from a marginal identity, right. then it's soft, and if not. Yeah. So I'm wondering now, like after having experienced what you experienced and the way that you approached your wedding 15 years ago or whatever, mm-hmm. how do you think about it now? Are you bringing more of yourself? I think one thing that we as journalists collectively have realized, at least over the course of my career, is that there's no such thing as an absence of identity. Right. The way my short storytelling is shaped has as much to do with the fact that I'm white and male mm-hmm. as it does to do with the fact that I'm gay and Jewish. Right. And so, like, one example I give in the book is if you're going to say gay people shouldn't report on LGBTQ issues, then are you going to say people of color shouldn't report on racial justice or the people who can have children shouldn't report on reproductive rights? And in that case, who's supposed to report on proposed changes to the tax code? Right. Because literally we all pay taxes. No, right. We all have a stake in it. And so – There's truly no such thing as the view from nowhere. And so rather than pretend that our identities don't exist or they somehow preclude us from being good journalists, we need to look at how to use our identity as a strength. And that 
doesn't mean there's no such thing as objectivity. It doesn't mean that we come to storytelling with a bias or a preconceived agenda or that we're actually secretly advocates. It does mean that we acknowledge our history, identity, and who we are, and we use that to deepen and enrich and add nuance to the reporting and storytelling that we do. And I think, you know, in 2004, when Mike and I got married, gay people were being used as political pawns in a national debate. In a very similar way, I think today, trans people are being Mm -hmm. used as political pawns Mm -hmm. in a national debate. And I think having trans journalists in your newsroom is a huge strength and an asset and arguably almost necessary in this moment when trans lives are being used as political weapons. And so far from saying that, oh, well, if you have that lived experience, it means you have bias and therefore you shouldn't be telling those stories, I think just the opposite. You need people with lived experience around that editorial table, that editorial meeting, so that you understand the lives of the people who are at the center of these stories. When you, back in 2004, do you feel like there were people advocating for you to be in the room in the same way that you just sort of advocated for trans Absolutely. journalists? You know, and and what I realize is that that has always been a part of NPR's DNA. Right. Um, Susan Stamberg, former host of All Things Considered, was the first woman ever to host a nationally broadcast nightly news program. Wow. And... So when I showed up some 30 years later, NPR had a history of fighting for inclusion. We obviously had work to do. We still have work to do. We need to reflect the entirety of the United States in a way that we still have work to do. But we have been built on a foundation of trying to be more inclusive. And that's something that I think when I showed up, there were other people fighting for me. And I hope that now, 20 years later, I can be the one to fight for people who are just coming in. Yeah, yeah. This is sort of a really small anecdote, but it comes from a really important part in the book when you're talking about 9-11 and you talk about this couple who, uh, it's a gay couple, they have an adopted son, and you call them a family. Mm-hmm. And I was writing like a 30-second little obituary for the host to read that would just like slot into the show when a story came in a little short. Yeah. And it was like right after 9-11. Yeah. Like the day, like that week. Yeah. And so I'm reading this section in your book and I'm like, God, that sounds so familiar to me. And I'm all of a sudden it flashes in my mind. There's a park in West Hollywood. It's a little playground and I take my kids there and there's a plaque for that child. You and are kidding me. No. And when I was oh my went God, to the park, <laughs> when I went to the park, I thought, it's so interesting that this kid died on 9-11, like this three-year-old. Because, what a coincidence. Like, like that kind that's of- just, Like I just thought, like, who's this kid? Like weird they died Whoa. on 9-11. We're in LA. Like, and then I, and I had looked it up and it was like, oh, this child died on 9-11, but I didn't know anything of the story. And then I'm reading your that's book. incredible. It's, yeah. And it's a fantastic playground. I love it wow, so much. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, Boy, so, that, so. <laughs> I, I had not heard that. That's so incredible. It, you needed to be talking to the exact person who has three-year-old children, children right now because they just reopened LA. the park a few wow. months ago or like it maybe a year ago. It's like one of our favorites. Anyways, um, but that is wild. That Thanks story for telling me that. also, I mean, is part of this conversation, right, of like you choosing to use the word family mm-hmm. to talk about those two people. And you say in the book, like someone else 
might not have picked this group of people to uh, to do the obituary for. Someone else might have used different language. Like yeah. they weren't married. So that were they a family, et cetera. And I could imagine somebody saying, well, that's evidence of bias or that's evidence right. of an agenda. And I think there's a distinction there. I don't think that's what was going on. I think that is trying to make the news reflect my identity, myself, right. my reality. And I don't think that's taking a position so much as it is describing the world as it is. But I, okay, can I ask you this? I know people use the That's word bias, <laughs> bias and agenda, and it has this really negative connotation. But I sort of, when I think about it, I think if we were all more honest and it we're just like, yeah, it does show our bias. Like, and that's okay because we all have it. There's this idea that no one's supposed to have bias, especially journalists. But if we're real and we also note that like Tucker Carlson has bias and, you know, Matt Lauer and like all yeah. these like white straight guys have it too. So I think bias is such a loaded word. Right. And often people who are accusing journalists of bias are doing so disingenuously right. because they themselves are trying to score points in one way or another. And I think what Tucker Carlson does is fundamentally different from sure. what I do. That's a bad example because he's like <laughs> so skewed. But I just mean like white but, dudes who But do the important it, distinction, one. I think, is the distinction between trying to influence and trying to illuminate. Mm -hmm. You know, like Refugees International might tell a story that is very similar to a story I tell. Right. In the plot points. Right. But ultimately, Refugees International is trying to influence, is trying right. to persuade people to do something. And I'm trying to illuminate. I'm trying to inform people. And so whether the story that I tells you moves you, motivates you, changes you, is between you and the story. Right. And so in the same way that I think like you know, a defense lawyer represents people whether or not they agree with mm -hmm. the individual that mm -hmm. they are defending because they believe in the importance of the legal system where people have representation. Right. I believe in the importance of journalism, fact-based stories that are grounded in what is happening mm -hmm. and not what should happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so whether my lived experience comes to bear or not, is not evidence of whether I am actually a secretly hidden, cloaked, undercover activist. Right, 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 right. And, it, and to the contrary, I think being open about my history, my experience, the fact that I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, the fact that I'm gay, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, helps with the transparency part. Right. I'm not trying to do anything undercover. Like, I'm right. really open about who I am. So when you're telling a story – I'm sure there's times where you bump up against something and you're like, am I illuminating? Am I trying to influence? How do you balance that for yourself and like set yourself back on that course that, you know, is so important to you, that journalistic integrity moment? Does that ever come up? And, and if so, what do you do? You know, the times that it comes up are moments when I'm interviewing somebody and they are playing fast and loose with the facts. Okay. <laughs> and I feel like I have to sort of like pull the leash a little yeah, bit and yeah. be like, well, that's actually not true. Yeah. Which is also part of my role as a journalist. You right. know, I am in a position to ask powerful people questions that most people aren't. Right. Particularly elected officials who are there to represent their constituents. And in many cases, like, you know, I'm thinking about at the UN climate summit, mm -hmm. I got to interview 
the UN climate envoy, John Kerry. Okay. And it was a combative interview. Oh. There was a lot of push-pull and my saying, okay, but you're talking about X when actually what matters is Y. And here's this Zimbabwean activist I talked uh-huh. to who said – or Ugandan, I'm sorry. There was a, a, Ugandan, a, a Ugandan activist named Vanessa Nakate who I spoke to. Like I played a clip of her for John Kerry thinking like, well, this activist is not going to have a chance to talk to the UN – the U.S. – climate envoy. And so in those moments, I can imagine people listening to the story and thinking like, Ari's got an agenda here. Right. He's coming in like ready to fight. But in that moment, I feel like what I am doing is serving as a surrogate Mm -hmm. for the people who can't be in the room with John Kerry. And that it's my role to ask difficult questions, to push back, to confront him with facts, to contextualize things that might be out of context because anyone listening is not going to get that chance to do that with John Kerry. And ultimately, by having that sort of tense, contentious back and forth, we are going to do more illumination. We are going to help listeners better understand what's going on than if I just let somebody recite their talking points uninterrupted. Right. right. Speaking of questions, mm-hmm. how do you think about asking questions? This is really a me question. Yeah. I'm curious so as a person who asks I think them. that the more <laughs> I prepare for an interview, the more I can let go of my preparation. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of work and then I try to just let go of it and listen. I think the most important thing in an interview is actually listening. And often the best questions that I ask in an interview are questions that I could not have planned in advance, mm-hmm. such mm-hmm. as how so? Or what makes you say that? Or really? Or give me an example. And I'll give you an example. (laughs) Please give me an example. I was interviewing this amazing pop star named Vincent about his first album. Do you know Vincent? I do. Vincent's a good friend of some of my friends. Amazing. So I was interviewing Vincent about his first album. And in the answer to my very first question, he said something about, writing a bunch of things on note cards and laying them all out. It was an exercise that his therapist had suggested he do. And that that kind of informed his album. I, being so glued to my script and my preparation and the questions I had written, sort of obliviously went on to the next thing. And my brilliant producer, Mallory, who was listening in, slacked me and said, why don't you ask for an example of what was on one of those index cards? And I thought, oh, thank you. I'm glad you were listening in because I completely missed that opportunity. So after Vincent answered the second question, I looped back and I was like, sorry, you know, earlier you were talking about those note cards. Can you give me an example of something that was on one of those note cards? And the answer to that question became the scaffolding that we built the whole Mm. conversation around, something that I never could have anticipated in my preparation. And so – even somebody who does this for a living, who does it every day, misses those moments. Yeah. I'm constantly learning from my colleagues, from listening back to opportunities that I missed. But I think often the best questions you can ask are the ones that you couldn't possibly have anticipated. Yeah. Something that you say about yourself really early on, you're talking about your younger self growing up Jewish in Fargo. And you kind of say like, you know, I was always a cultural ambassador even as a kid, like being the only Jewish boy or the only Jewish family in town. How do you think about that responsibility now? Like, how are you thinking of yourself as a cultural ambassador when it maybe is less clear? Because, yeah. you know, on NPR, I think probably a lot of people know Jewish people. A lot of oh, people of who listen know gay people. Well, and- I think the evolution is that when I was a kid, I was telling people about me. Yeah. 
And as a journalist, I'm telling people about others. Or at least I was until I wrote a memoir, and now I'm once again now telling people about me. Now back talking to yourself. <laughs> Welcome myself. back. <laughs> but the, the sort of like intuitive leap was the realization that in journalism, I can do the thing that I was doing as the Jewish kid in elementary school and as the outgate teen in high school, but I can do it for groups that I have no personal connection Ooh. to. So if where we sit right now, a Bikers for Trump rally seems completely foreign and distant, or the idea of people living in coastal Senegal whose homes are being swallowed by rising seas feels like that could be happening on another planet. My opportunity, my privilege is to go into that Senegalese community, to go into that Bikers for Trump rally, find the stories that people there have, and help you to see the world through their eyes. Mm, yeah. This just popped into my head because those are going to be the best questions. Well, this is such a small one, but (laughs) you travel a lot, obviously. Where do you like to sit on the plane? Oh, the aisle because I'm 6'3. Okay. I mean, if I can get an exit row seat, even better. Okay. But yeah. Okay. I, there, do you know I who, tend I tend to fly coach, as you might surmise from the fact that I work for public radio. I don't know you. I don't know what kind of miles you use. I don't know. Uh, well, I, I read that. There's a book that came out a few years ago. I wish I could remember her last name. Aminata something. She And she it's called The Window Seat. Hmm. And she's a journalist and she traveled and she talked about how, you know, being in the airplane and like looking out the window and seeing the world below her. And that just made me think of it. I was like, hmm. she made this really compelling argument for the window seat. Well, look, if I had enough room, I would love a window seat. <laughs> <laughs> on Air Force One, the radio – so the people who fly in Air Force One are the press pool. Yes. Which is because you don't have room, obviously, for the entire White House press corps right, on the right. plane. So on Air Force One, there's like one TV person, one print person, one radio person, etc. And the radio pool seat is on the aisle. But okay. flying on Air Force One, you always wanted to be near the window because you're flying into these crazy, amazing places and you're like, you know – arriving on Air Force One. So that, that was always kind of a, a shot you wanted to have. But then often Air Force One would land and you would get on helicopters. And from the helicopters, yeah. you see amazing things. I mean, I can remember being like the helicopter motorcade, whatever it's called, um, in South Africa, mm. in Cape Town, Ugh. sort of going from one, yeah, just. Cape Town is like one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. One of the most been. beautiful cities in the world. Inc- I mean. Absolutely astounding. I feel like it's one of those places where, the horror of what people did there does not match the beauty of the city. And yeah. it's constantly that Intention. pull. Yeah. Like when you're but there, you know, like I remembering. I feel that way about American cities. I feel that way about Savannah, Georgia. Sure. Like I've Savannah, never been. <laughs> it's a beautiful, gorgeous city that has such a dark past. Yeah. yeah. You know? No, I'm sure there's tons of cities like that. It's right. just the one that for me Cape is like, Town, that's feel the it. one. Well, also because as you drive from the airport into like the center of town, you pass these. Like all the townships. Yeah. And all stuff. the townships. Yeah. And then the Table Mountain and like the fog and oh, oh, yeah. the most beautiful sunset I ever saw was there. Okay. Wait, we should take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last Three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. 
The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, we're back. So you have, again, like we talked about, traveled all over. You tell a story about a refugee, you know, about following a man who was like trying to, you know, leave and and go. He was going to Germany. He was Syrian. He was yeah. Syrian and he was going to Germany and you're following him. And you talk about like the balance between journalism and sort of this like cruelty or or, you know, like – just not giving them money for a bus ticket when right. you could and you could afford it. And we've had many shows, uh, episodes of this podcast. We talked to Andrea Elliott, who wrote that book, um, Invisible Child. Oh, yeah. And she and I talked about this at length because she's following a family who is homeless. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're you know relying on New York City and the United States government for a lot of their money and all of these things. And you know, I asked her about it and I thought, like, how do you – balance that not so much as a journalist, but just as like a dude. Right. Right. So for me, I mean, just to like drill down into that specific example, this guy, Manzer Omar, I met him in the Turkish city of Izmir on the coast where he was trying to get a human smuggler to put him on a raft to go to to Greece, which was not that far away. And then at some point he gave up on Izmir. And so he decided to try the city of Bodrum. And he was struggling to get to Bodrum without spending down his already diminished savings. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to drive my rental car to Bodrum. I'll see you there. (laughs) Like, I was the only one in the rental car. I could easily have given him a ride to Bodrum. Right. And so where I ultimately come down on this is that the role of the journalist is important and different from the role of the aid worker or the, you know, clergy or all of the other people who are doing important things. Right. A journalist shows up at the scene of a natural disaster. And FEMA will be there, and the Red Cross will be there, and emergency doctors will be there. And the journalists are doing something that is different from all of those others. Mm. And all those others are serving essential purposes. But the journalist has a really important role to play too. And what makes that role different is that we're not helping, we're narrating. Right. And if we were to start helping, then we'd be 
doing something other than what we're there to do. Right. And so it can be difficult. And there are moments that you just kind of want to intervene. But what you are there to do is to tell the story. And it's also important to me that from the very beginning, when I start talking to somebody, I lay out what I'm there to do right? and where the lines are. And I say, like, I'm, I'm not going to be able to help you on your journey. And if that's a deal breaker for you, I absolutely understand. Like, there are often people when I show up in places like that who simply don't want to talk. And I respect that. Yeah. But there are other people who have a story that they want to tell and they want someone to listen. And in those settings, I think I can be of service in a way that's different from the way that the aid worker and the others are also of service. Yeah. Have you, to your, in your opinion, ever crossed that line? You don't have to tell us when. I've always, I, I think I've always been careful not to cross that line. But something that I will tell you is that in the last chapter, I talk about this transgender woman in Indonesia mm-hmm. who started this home for people with HIV. Mm-hmm. And I've just never forgotten her. I think the place she created is so incredible. A few years after I made that reporting trip, so like there's no actual official statute of limitations, right, but sure. I was like, it's been years since I did this story. I started just monthly sending a check to that place huh. in Indonesia. So like, I don't think I've ever crossed that line, but I do now financially support this like house for transgender women with HIV that I did a story on. Yeah, so that doesn't feel like a line yeah. even close. That just feels like Ari's a nice guy. And <laughs> do you think by telling someone's story, you are like looking for someone who is more worthy or if like the, I'll tell you how exactly how I have it written down by telling someone's story. Do you think it makes them more worthy? If not, why bother telling that particular story? And if so, how do you decide who is worthy? It's such a good question. And so complicated Yeah, because in a way, like the people who I talk about in this book in many cases are people who have really stuck with me, you right. know, who I've, sort of dug deep into their stories. But often I will be looking, you know, like when I was covering the Romney campaign in 2012, Mm -hmm. I would have five or 10 minutes before he took the stage and I would know that he was giving a speech about, I don't know, the elderly or whatever. I'd be like, I need to find somebody who represents retirees. Retiree, there you are in the crowd. Give me a quote. You represent a retiree. You're basically a symbol for a category. (laughs) Or if you're telling a story about I don't know, immigration. It's like find an individual mm. who represents that or mm. student debt or whatever the case yeah. may be. And this is not a deception. Like I say, I'm doing a story on student debt. Do you have student debt? Would you like to talk right, to me about your right. student debt? Whatever else that person may be, a child of immigrants, a Capricorn, uh, like whatever. It doesn't <laughs> matter for that story. There's right. somebody with student debt. right? And I think the more time you spend with somebody, the more you're able to sort of bring in the nuance and the complexity and the sort of ways in which their story is not just a symbol for a category of Mm -hmm. news item that you're talking about. Um, But I don't think that means worthiness. I don't think that means specialness. It just means that they are a, a sort of aperture through which somebody who is not connected to them or their story can access the larger issue that I'm there to talk about. Yeah. And it can be weird when you're, you know, choosing somebody from among a large group of individuals, Mm -hmm. like 
you know, I'm telling a story about the best party in South Beach, Miami, and there's thousands of people at the party. And it's like, hmm, who's going to be the voice of this party? What person will I quote? I'm making this up. Yeah, I didn't course. do a party about us, a, a story about a party. <laughs> yes. You know what? I, yet. Actually, now that I think about it, I, I actually did. <laughs> and now that I think about it, in 2004, I did a profile of this woman who created this company that like hired out dancers and performers for parties. Oh my gosh. Dug that up from deep in the recesses of my brain. There was nothing significant or important about that story no. per se. Okay. Anyway. Okay. Um, so your publicist is here and it's my dear friend, Joseph, Joseph Papa. Papa, who has been a guest on the show. Extraordinary human. And I asked, Can I just say, if anyone listening uh-huh. is like an aspiring author or has a book about to come out, the best advice I was given was hire an outside publicist. And even better than that was, I know there's nothing better than the best, was hire Joseph Papa yes. specifically. I yeah. concur. I've never written a book, but I tell people to hire an outside publicist yeah. and to hire Joseph as well. And this is <laughs> no shade whatsoever to my extraordinary publicist at HarperCollins. Yes. But Joseph Papa's quite a We're very pro-Papa around here. But anyways, I was going to say, so I was writing these questions, like writing out my work yesterday, and Joseph was sitting next to me. Oh, and, and did he... Bet the questions no, that you're asking. But I asked Did my him, publicist no, influence your questions? Never. I would never let him. He was trying to push <laughs> some questions. I was like, I'm not asking that. But I did turn to him and I said, I don't know if this is like the most basic question ever, but I have to know the answer. How do you file a story? What does that entail? Oh, that's you a great question. Because you talked about it in yeah. the, during the Air Force One stuff. And you're like, we're down. We're touched down for 30 yeah. minutes. I got to file this story. What does that actually mean? That's a great question. And now I'm wondering if I should have explained that more clearly in the book. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Whoops. Paperback edition. Paperback edition. Oh, I should How also say New York Times story. bestselling Ari oh. Shapiro. I didn't even get to say it in the beginning. I fucked it up. I'll do it in the intro so you guys will have already heard it. But Ari just made the bestseller list Literally yesterday. yesterday. So crazy. So here's how I file a story. I'm walking around, talking to people, recording it on my little mini disc. Mini disc. My God, I haven't used a <laughs> mini disc for 20 years. What am I saying? My, my flash card recorder. Then I like slip that flash card into my computer and I will pull cuts, which is like I have the audio file and it's like, here's the quote of so-and-so saying this. Here's the sound of the helicopter taking off. Here's the music underneath the scene. Here's the air conditioner running in the background that'll mask the whatever. And then I line them all up. And then I tippity-tappity type out my script And then I call an editor and I say, let's run through it. And with the editor on the phone, I say, today in Washington, the president said, blah, 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 click. And then the editor hears the sound of the president saying, blah, blah, blah. We run through the thing and the editor says, "Moon, that was 30 seconds too long or this didn't make sense to me or I think you should actually start with that, whatever. We make the changes. Once we've made the changes and we've finalized it and settled it, I send all of my audio clips in to Washington and then I record my script, send that into Washington, and then a producer weaves them all together, makes radio magic, and puts it on the air. Wow. That makes sense? Totally makes sense. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay. Here's another thing we have to talk about. We have yeah. to talk about reading the book because – so I've been doing the show for five years. I've read – Five years? Yeah, wow. Five You're years like next week. Amazing. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Very proud of myself. Um, Happy anniversary. Thank you. Thank you. But I, from the beginning, have always read every book cover to cover. Same. Yes. Turns out people don't do that. Yeah. I've noticed that in a couple of interviews. <laughs> <laughs> we won't name names. But 
I have to ask you this question. You can tell me no, but I'll go first. Okay. There have been three books that I did not finish before I interviewed the author. Mm. Not that I did not intend to finish them. I either ran out of time or I just really struggled with the book. Yeah. Have you ever not finished a book? No, but I've decided to skim. Okay. I have looked at every page of every book that I've done an author interview for. I've never left a book unfinished, but there have definitely been times. I mean, I am on record in the New York Times I saw. as saying that I think many nonfiction books, some nonfiction books, whatever, a percentage of nonfiction books would be just as good or better if they were the length of a long magazine article. Yes, that's right. And so there comes a point in certain nonfiction books mm-hmm. where I'm like, I get it. I'm going to like, I'm going to. Look at the whole thing. I'm going to read at least some of every single page, but I don't need to dive quite so deep into this subject in order to interview somebody for an eight-minute piece. I actually find, I don't know if you have found this, but sometimes when I'm reading books for an author interview, I find the acknowledgments to be the most useful source of questions. I love the acknowledgments so much that I will never read them until I finish the book because it is my reward. Oh, wow. I love it. And do you feel that way both as a reader and as an interviewer? I don't, I just love it. I just feel like there's, there's like treasures in there. It's like, who totally. do they thank? What other Absolutely. writers? Who helped them? Yeah. What fellowship did they get? Yes. Like just. For me, it's like, yeah. oh, you know, when, when I was a child, my great grandmother told me the story of blah, blah, blah. And that set me off on the idea of this novel that I'm like, okay, that's what I'm going to ask about is yeah. when you were a child and your great grandmother told you that story that provided the seed for this novel. Yeah. I, I can't, I can't say more because this is going to air before this other episode that I'm talking about, but in the episode the, or in the acknowledgments, the author's like, and I want to thank this other author. And you might notice that this book was written in the style of their work because they were such an inspiration. And I didn't notice that when I was reading the book. But obviously, Were you I familiar asked with the other authors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had okay. re- read the big, the big book. I'll tell you after. Um, but I, I asked the author about it, and it was actually really one of my favorite questions. Yeah. I was like, "Yes, thank you for telling yeah. me about this and like why this author was important to them, et cetera, et cetera." Um, as a big reader, one of my favorite questions to ask readers is two books you love, one book you hate." So I rarely look back over my shoulder. Okay. So I'm going to give you two recent books that okay. I've loved. You can give me anything. Okay. One book that I just adore that has not come out yet. Okay. Is by the author Abraham Verghese. <gasps> Covenant. It's right behind it you. By, have you read it? <laughs> I haven't read it yet. Oh. <laughs> I have to tell you that story too. Okay. <gasps> Do you love him? So I had never read one of his books before. Oh. <gasps> and it arrived. I got an email and it was like, heads up, this is 800 pages. That's right. They didn't give me the heads up. And I was like, yes, I'd love to read it. And then it arrived. And I was like, when will I have this time? So I got it in December or January. Okay. It comes out in May. Yes. And of course, I had books that were publishing in January, February yes. that I needed to read. Yes. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to read the first 20 pages of this to see if I want to do it or not. Yes. I read the whole 800 or 700 or whatever, whatever it is page book before those January, February, because I was so sucked in by it. And now, like, my great regret is that I can't go back and read Cutting for you Stone. Have, you just have to find the I time. Because I have such no, a pile. Find I the have time. to do it. Find the time. I have to do it. He's also got a memoir. I know. He has, he has Yeah. There's one about. Tennis. Um, which and one I about HIV. That right? one. My Own Country. Yeah. I love that book. So I've never read anything of his. And what, I mean, first of all, I just love the book on its merits, period. But I also love that he's like a practicing physician yeah. <laughs> on faculty at Stanford Medical School. And look, I'm a person who is a 
like serious journalist and I also sing with a band and I also do a cabaret show with Alan Cumming and now I'm also an author. And so the idea that this guy who wrote this beautiful, sweeping, epic, gorgeous novel also practices medicine and that he weaves his knowledge of medicine into his fiction just have you started reading it? I haven't even started it. No. I think once you start, you are going to okay. be swept away by it. Okay. I, I, I like. Okay. For me, getting through the seven hundred pages was not a problem at all. When a book earns the seven hundred pages, yes. I don't mind. I'm much more of a nonfiction person, so sometimes seven hundred pages of fiction just feels like. Yeah. Are you trying to kill me? <laughs> I'm more of a fiction person. Yeah, I. Although get I read it. tons of nonfiction for work, it's one of the things that I um. I've been told is to never read my Goodreads reviews. Don't do it. Okay. But what I've done instead, because oh I can't help myself, is when I read the Goodreads reviews, and obviously there are people saying things that I like would rather not read, um, I then go and find the Goodreads reviews for a book that I think is a, like a treasure, extraordinary. Uh-huh. Oh, and yeah. I read those Goodreads reviews. There's some really great Instagram accounts that like share one-star reviews of like classic books yeah. or like great yeah. books. So and it's like, like I shouldn't yeah. say this, but- I adored The Covenant of Water. And so there was one moment when I was like, okay, if I'm feeling a little bad about my Goodreads reviews, I'm going to go read the Goodreads reviews for this book that I think is an absolute treasure. And it's like, oh, okay, there were people who disliked that too. Yes. They were clearly wrong. So maybe the people who disliked my book are also wrong. People just, I mean, on Goodreads, you can find, like, people will one-star the Bible. Okay. I'm just like, Can what I just are you tell doing? you, on Amazon, someone gave me a one-star review because of the quality of the paper that the book was printed on. Okay, don't do deckled edges on your book because people will destroy you. I, this is not deckled. No, this I is know, beautiful saying, paper. If you had done My deckled friend, edges, you'd have a whole star less average on book on good. Really? Reads. People. Okay, I love. I didn't a even know the edge. word deckled. I know what it means from context, this, this, but I yes. I well, didn't for know. people who don't know, it's those pages that are kind of like feathery. Yeah, I love a deckled edge personally. I did an Instagram post that was like, "What's your biggest book pet peeve?" And people or like a question box. It was like 45 people said that. And I was like, are you guys – like, what is wrong with you? Why do you care so much about the pages? My friend and colleague Linda Holmes, who has written a couple fantastic novels, um, talks about getting Amazon reviews that say – the delivery person left the package out in the rain and the book was wet. Yes. I've heard about this. I'm like, are you guys out of your minds? Like, it's just – It uh, is a review of the book as object. Yeah. It is a review of the actual physical book. Yeah. Okay. Wait. We have to do the other book you love yeah. and the book you hate. Okay. So the other book I love, which I'm still 50 pages from the end. I was just okay. reading it on the flight over, is Salman Rushdie's latest, Victory oh. City, which is this epic st- – I've read many but not all of his books. Okay. I've never read any. No, well, you're a nonfiction person. I know. Salman Rushdie was one of those people who I discovered in high school. I don't know who recommended that I read one of his books, but it, the first book of his that I read wasn't even Midnight's Children, but it was just like his writing was like nothing I had ever read before. And then I went back and read so many of his novels. And now I've read most many, but not all of the things he's written since. Um, I interviewed him years ago. Of course, there was that horrible, brutal attack on yeah. him over the summer. And so I just thought, I want to read this next book. And it is epic and mythic and it centers on this woman who is sort of part goddess and it's just there's clearly so much historical research that went into it and yet it feels like some ancient epic right um it's really beautiful and it's one of those books that i'm going to be sad when it ends because i just feel like i'm being swept along on this journey but you talk about in your book 
always or never getting to go back and read things. But this yeah. book has been out for a little bit and you're reading it. You're right. You're right. Because I'm on sabbatical right now from okay. work. And so I was like, So you can read the Abraham Vergay's book. I know. Cutting I for know. Stone. Just get it. I need okay. you to read it. We need to talk about okay. it. Okay. Book you hate. My favorite part. My shady This is so part. hard for me. I've really been thinking hard about this. <laughs> and I cannot think of a book that I like, that I hate, hate. Well, think of a book you hate, hate. <laughs> I've been racking my brain. So like, you know, I was an English major in college. Oh. I had to read a lot of things that like didn't make sense to me or that I didn't finish. But I feel like hatred has to come from a – like hate and love are much more closely related than hate and indifference. Yeah. And I can't think of a book that I feel hatred for. What? You know what I mean? Like, I can. I can think of a million books I feel hatred Give me an for. example. I hate Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, Talking to Strangers. I haven't read it. Oh, my God. I, I hate that book. There was a book that came out a few years ago called The Line Becomes a River um, by Francisco Cantu. And it was like about uh, immigration from Mexico to America. But he is a writer who decided to become a border agent to like tell the oh. story. And I just – the writing was lovely, but I like hated the idea of the book of like becoming a cop – to, yeah. to fuck with people yeah, just yeah, so you sure. could write your little memoir. I can think of books that weren't for me, but not books that I hated. And I wouldn't want to call them out because I know that other people love them. Ari's so uh, nice. Okay, you know, Ari, like, you're seriously. not coming back on this podcast with all this kindness. I mean, for example, like I can think, so, you know, as I'm thinking like back in college, I read the Iliad and the Odyssey and I preferred yeah. the Odyssey to the Iliad, but I'm not going to say I hated the Iliad. It's okay. just like one bloody Ari Shapiro episode hates the another. Iliad and that's going to be our uh, audio cut right You know, there. like when I think about Shakespeare, like um, I don't think that, um, what's the bloody gory? Uh, Titus Andronicus. Titus Andronicus is I like. I love it. It's one of you, my favorites. Really? Why I've is read Titus all, Andronicus shit, all one of your favorites? I think it's underrated. I think it's like so clear. It's one of those books that I'm like, oh, you should be teaching this to kids because it makes so much sense. You can follow – like in high school, if I was taught that, I would have been like, Shakespeare is a freak and I love it. Like <laughs> oh it's bloody. God. There's revenge. There's hatred. Tamara is like such a juicy wow. character. Okay, see, I can't make the case that you're wrong. I'm sure. just like, eh, it's not well, for me. A book that you the, hate doesn't have to be a book that's the worst book ever yeah. written, you know? The, I mean, the, the examples that come to mind, Are old if we're being days. really honest. Well, no, the oh. reason I'm reaching for those is because there are author interviews that I've done on NPR where I'm like, this is a great conversation about a book that I would not recommend to anyone. Same. I've had those too. <laughs> I've had those too. <laughs> and, you know, my mom sometimes just accidentally will refer to my reviews of books uh -huh. on NPR. Uh -huh. And I am always insistent. I was like, this is not a review. <laughs> because if I were reviewing these books, I would say, this is no good, don't read it. <laughs> But as, as an interviewer, I'm like having an interesting conversation about a book that I personally would not recommend to anyone. But I don't want to be on record as saying that that author who poured their heart and soul. Okay, I'm going to tell you a story. Okay. Early in my time as a host of All Things Considered, I was asked to be a judge for a tournament of cookbooks on a food website. And cool. so I was sent two cookbooks and I was told to cook at least three dishes from each of them okay. and then write a little essay about like why I chose the one I did. And I mean, this was more than five years ago. What I wrote was kind of snarky and rude okay. towards the cookbook that I didn't choose. And now five years later, I just think to myself, 
somebody worked really hard on that cookbook. Yes. And so I didn't prefer it over the other cookbook. But did I really have to be such a bitch about it? Maybe you <laughs> did. I, I'm a, I am a, a thing that I believe very deeply in my heart is that hating art is important and it's good for the art. Um, like the, and I, this is like a crusade that I'm on around books is I wish more people were snarky about books in the yeah. same way that we're snarky about TV or a movie That's or a fair. song or an yeah. album, yeah. because I think that that leads to really interesting cultural conversations. If you can just be like this book. And again, it's your opinion. It's not like, I know. you know, I'm, I'm like thinking of books where I'm like, I love what they were trying to do, but it did not succeed. <laughs> right. But and, I don't want to call out that. Well, you author. don't have to. I feel like okay. you've called out Shakespeare. You've told him he's on notice for <laughs> Titus Andronicus. You've called, you've done your hate, but I just, for me, I like, I understand though. I also like as a person who puts things out into the world, I have feelings and I'm insecure when people don't like what I Can do. I tell it's you, hard. One of the great things that my editor, Rakesh Satyal, did when I had a draft manuscript, he reminded me that it was something people would actually read. Mm -hmm. And so a few places where I name checked individuals, very, very, very famous individuals, he was like, this story works without the individual's name in it. Maybe you don't want to like publicly <laughs> call them out just to name check them. And so in the book, I referenced the movie Philadelphia from 1993. I'm familiar. I do not reference the very famous actor who starred in Philadelphia by name. Wow. Although in a previous draft, I did. That's fair. <laughs> There's two very famous actors in it, though. That's true. So That's who true. knows? Well, I refer to a straight actor weeping along to a Maria Calasaria. So you do the math. Yes, I'm familiar. I, I mean, I knew who it was. I was trying to give you sure, cover. Sure. Um, okay. You talked about your producer. And there is maybe my famous favorite line, perhaps in the entire book. Is when you, when your producer tells your new producer or your new oh. team that you need the peanut butter pretzels salted. It's yes, not the unsalted kind. It's the salted for me yeah. because that's the correct answer. My yeah. husband is a dangerous Wait, is person unsalted? and he buys unsalted. That's Isn't that wrong. the most Is that some horrible? like virtue signaling? I don't know what's wrong with him. He was he was raised in a family who did not use a lot of salt. So he thinks uh, things are salty a lot of the time. That's wrong. It's, I'm sorry. It's horrible. But when I saw that, it was like have to be the salted. I was like, Ari and I are kids. Absolutely. Because I'm a huge snack person. I love hearing what people's favorite line of the book <laughs> is. And you're the first person to have named that particular one. I mean, there's other parts of the book that I love, but that, actually, that's not true. My other favorite, there's two favorite parts. Both speak to me and my soul. One is the snacks and the other is your pettiness about the person who wrote you the mean letter oh, that you like the postcard have on your that desk. is still framed on my desk to this day. Yeah, because... I am two things. I am a snack lover and I am petty. Oh, and like soulmates. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, and both those things happen early in the book. So yeah. I was like, you know, I'm going with this guy. Oh, I'm, I'm so going glad. with Ari. Um, so that <laughs> postcard, may I recite it for yeah, you? Yeah, you may. It's a, it was the first time I was ever filling in as a host of Morning Edition. <laughs> and the postcard said, dear Ari, please butch up. I find a daily dose of your personality annoying. I'm a person too. Signed, D. Emerson, Miami, Florida. And I framed it, and it's still on my desk to this day. And I love this. Can I tell you what my favorite line in the book was? Yes, you can. I was really proud of it. <laughs> Nobody has asked me. Well, what's your favorite line in the book? Which is funny because I say that I hate superlative questions. I hate, like, what was your favorite interview you've yeah. ever done? What was the most? I, like, I can't stand them. I can't answer them. And yet I'm <laughs> <You're> totally contradicting <laughs> myself by, like, waiting for somebody to ask me my favorite line in the book. And I have one, which is... I'm very good at holding two contradictory ideas in my head. After all, I'm a Libra. 
and I don't believe in astrology. <laughs> yes, I do remember that moment. I was very proud of I that. I like this for you. Thank you. You're in Los Angeles. Please don't repeat that. Because I know. Oh, my God. It'll be very troubling. It is like, it's, it's a cult, except a cult doesn't have as many people in it. Yeah. This has way too many, like, I'm sorry. I have no <laughs> objection to astrology. My grandmother was a fortune teller. Okay. I get the whole woo-woo thing. <laughs> but- I did an interview on Las Culturistas, the podcast, and Matt Rogers said something about not only will I believe this, but it will become a dominant facet of my personality, which I thought really describes so many people in Los Angeles. That's exactly right. That I was not big into it. I was like a little into it because I'm a Leo. And so when you're a Leo, you have to be into astrology. But living in LA now, I'm like, oh, you actually like won't leave the house this week. Like you really Wait, won't, really? you won't do a thing because Wait, really? you won't sign, you won't do, oh yeah. yeah. Like I have had friends be like, you know, Mercury's in retrograde, you should not go and test drive a car. I'm like, what? Okay. <laughs> I'm like, does that mean there's going to be less people there? I can get in wow. and out faster. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, but so back to the snacks. Oh yeah. Something that I ask everyone on the podcast is how do you write? Where are you? Oh. How many hours a day? How often are there snacks and beverages? If so, what? Lighting candles, yeah. affirmation cards, astrology. For me, because I was working a full-time job as host of All Things Considered and did not take a book leave to do this, Ugh. although I started writing it in a cabin in the woods in Northern California in the Redwood Forests, I you know, wrote the vast majority of it while I was doing other things. And so for me... The key was lowering the barrier to entry. Okay. There was not some ritualistic, we are now in the writing zone mode. It was on a weekday, I will aspire to write 500 words. On a weekend day, I will aspire to write 1,000 words. Okay. I am not going to force myself to write every day. But when I am writing, in order to not feel like I have a huge mountain ahead of me that I'm never going to be able to climb... I broke it into digestible bite-sized pieces. So when I hit the 500 word mark, I was like, done, move on. I did it on the same laptop that I used for my day job. And I did it whenever, wherever. Mm. You know, sometimes it was before work with a cup of coffee. Sometimes it was after work with a cocktail. Sometimes it was like sitting outside on my patio. Sometimes it was at my desk in the office. It was wherever, whenever. The key to me was the bite-sized pieces. 500 words on a weekday, 1,000 on a weekend day. Snacks and beverages besides coffee and cocktails? No writing specific snacks, but I'm a snacker. Generally salty rather than sweet. Okay. But I cannot really keep nuts or the Trader Joe's peanut butter filled pencils yeah. around because I will literally eat all of them. Eat all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I love this. I can have cookies in the house. They will remain uneaten. Really? For an ordinary amount of time. I mean, okay. not forever. You'll eat them, but I'll just, eat them, yeah. but I'll eat them like a normal <laughs> human being. If I have a family sized bag of chips and salsa, that bag That's will be gone. gone in 24 hours. Okay, what about this? What's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Hmm. Amanuensis? Okay, that's a word I've literally never heard before. It's a it's a person who is like an assistant, uh, uh, like um, like a protege, uh, like a stenographer. I, I, there are lots of words I can never spell on the first try. That's the first one that popped into my head. I was literally going to say to you, wait, how do you spell <laughs> Well, there's an M somewhere in it. There's a U. So a W? No. I think it's U-E-N when I won't make you spell it because if you get it wrong, you know, people will come tell you about I how know. you don't know how to spell the word that um, you don't know how to spell. What's another word that I always spell wrong? 
Um, um, okay, this is not a word I spell wrong, but it is a true confession. I sometimes confuse elbow and shoulder. Like you confuse them for real or you call them the wrong name? I will refer to my elbow when I mean my shoulder oh my or gosh. I will refer to my shoulder when I mean my elbow. <laughs> and I remember doing that as a child in the same way that as a child, like I would sometimes write a lowercase b instead of a d or vice versa okay. and think, oh, when I grow up, I'll stop making this mistake. Huh. Well, I figured out my b's and my d's, but, but I still do elbow, elbow shoulder, shoulder wrong. That's so funny. Okay. This is an, another very like niche question for me specifically, but did you go to high school with Shoshana B? Oh my God. Yes. So I, Where does that question come from? Because we sang together in high Beaver school. 10. Yeah, we're Are still you, friends. So I, one of my best friends from college, I went to NYU, yeah. went, is from Lake Oswego. Okay. And were you in performance at yes, NYU? Yes, I was a theater girl. Okay. And Shoshana Bean was like doing her Broadway thing. She was an alphabet yeah. for a bit while I was in New York. Right. And before that, Hairspray. Yeah. Yeah. And so she is sort of a famous Broadway person from that area. And I was kind of doing the math oh, on yeah. your age and her age. And I was like, yeah. I think she went to that high school. We sang together in high school. She's wow. so wonderful. She even comes back and does like fundraisers for the theater department in my high school. Wow. Yeah, she's the best. Yeah. Oh. If you know, you know. Yeah, it's just a, it's a real niche question. People are Somebody listening like, what the fuck? A, fr- a mutual friend of ours was like, when you were in high school, did you know that she was like a singular talent? And the true answer was, I thought everybody had a Shoshana Bean in their high school. I had zero perspective. I didn't know that she's literally a once in a generation voice. Yeah. You know, like I knew that she was the best around, but I thought others had that too. You know, so funny. It's like thinking that a a Whitney Houston is a dime a dozen or something. Right, 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 right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I went to Tisch for theater, so it felt that way in college, but in high school, I didn't, I didn't, I don't think we had that, but definitely in college, I'm like so spoiled. All my friends are like Tony nominated and, you know, Golden Globe winners. And I'm like, yes, that's right. Of course, because I thought you were talented in college, but right, it was like the right. cream of the crop Actually at NYU. Incredibly yeah. talented. Incredibly talented people. Um, this is such a fucked up question to ask someone whose book just came out, but I'm going to ask you, what comes next? That's a question I've not been able to answer, but I am excited to write another book. I just don't know what it's going to be. Would you write My, fiction? Well, I don't have a fiction idea. Okay. My husband says I should write a book called The Next Best Strangers in the World. <laughs> Just which a follow-up? Yeah, which I don't think is going to happen. I like the idea of doing some kind of original journalistic nonfiction project next, but I don't know what that would be. I When I think about the people I admire, there is a cohesiveness to their body of work. Sure. Like Michael Pollan or Alex sure. Gibney, who's not an author, but he's a filmmaker. And, yeah. And, and I feel like they do a lot of different things, but there's a through line and a cohesion. And I need to figure out what that is yeah. for me. Uh, and I don't know yet. Okay. But my book agent keeps asking, okay. so you're not the first. <laughs> well, I just meant generally. Gently, didn't kindly, have to be a book she, thing. Oh, well, the next, next thing is that I'm um, doing my show with Alan Cumming at the Cafe Carlisle in New York for oh, two weeks. Starting April 5th. Okay. Um, yeah. So... It's I wish exciting. I was in New York to see it. It's so fun. I love doing that show with him. I was so it was so fun to read about it. Um, I know him from Cabaret. That's yeah, obviously just how I first met him. Yeah, it's that that age of being in New York right. at that, you know. Yeah. Um I meant to ask you this about the structure of the book. How were you thinking about the essays? I didn't write them in order. Okay. But I knew that I I, I knew that it wasn't like a cohesive narrative beginning yeah. to end. 
But I also knew that I wanted it to have, I almost think of it as like, if you take a yoga class, there's sort of like gentle warmups and you progress to the most challenging poses and there's kind of a cool down. Like I knew that in the center, I wanted this sort of trio of intense chapters about kind of like war and conflict. But I also wanted to intersperse it with like moments where you can catch your breath, sort of levity and pauses. And I knew that there were going to be the two musical interludes. And um, and then I wanted to sort of let the reader down gently at the end. So even though it is a collection of essays and they are not interconnected and one doesn't necessarily always lead directly into the other, right. although in some cases there's an obvious sort of chronological flow, I wanted to feel like you're sort of easing into it. And by the time you get to these stories about like upheaval and heartbreak, you're ready for them. Yeah. How I, did it feel to you? Did it feel random or did it feel no, like it, it flowed? It or? felt like it flowed, but to me... I, I wrote I, the reason I asked this question is because I wrote down these sort of feel like radio segments, mm. like each essay on its own. It did have that sort of like conversational feeling where you kind of set us up and like let us know where we were headed, and then kind of had these like twists and turns inside. Each I think one. that's probably just because it's that's how you tell stories. That's how I tell stories. Yeah. But I I did want it to have the quality that I think on its best days, all things considered, has where has where you never quite know what's coming next. Yeah. And collectively, it encompasses the entirety of the human experience. And you get like, you know, hard news and entertainment and joy, surprise and uplift and interesting random facts. And like collectively, you get a real cornucopia of experiences. I think that that happened. A word that comes to mind for me, and I don't, I don't, I hope this word isn't like belittling, but the essays are sort of delightful. Like there's this sense of delight in them. Well, I don't know. Sometimes, you know, sometimes delightful. It's like, oh, that's so delightful. No, I mean it like in a much more rich sense where it was like, I was delighted to read even the more difficult ones. I was like, this is sort of like a lovely way to read about this thing. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I think the through line is curiosity and discovery and that should feel like a delight, even if it is, I mean, Look, even when I'm in incredibly challenging, difficult scenarios, I feel so fortunate and privileged to be able to have that experience and access that and hear those stories and then share them with people. Yeah. It's, it's a real gift that I don't take for granted. You talk about in the book being sort of in awe of the fact that you get to ask experts questions. And totally. that's how I feel on this show. It's like getting to talk to people and be like, can you tell me why you wrote this part of your book. And like, that's why I started the show. It's like, I just wanted to ask book lovers and writers the questions I had that came up when I was reading the book. I mean, as you know, from the book, those are some of my favorite interviews. With With writers, you said that they like illuminate the world for you or like help you make sense of it. And I mean, I, although for me, it's more often fiction. I I do fiction (laughs) on the show too, but, um, I just, it's like, you know, you say curious, and that's a word I always use to describe myself, but also like a little bit nosy. Like, oh, yes. You know, it's absolutely. a little bit just like, I sort of totally. want to know, like yeah. getting to ask Andrea Elliott, like, did you feel guilty when you won the Pulitzer at all? Like, yeah. Yeah. what's that like? Yeah. You know, and her taking me at face value and being right. like, yes or no. Right. It's just yeah. such a, it's Wait, very. Wait, was hum- the answer yes or no? Well, she gave a much more interesting answer. answer, but she <laughs> sort of was like, yeah, I mean, it's really hard to have success off of someone else's hardship. And she followed the family for eight years. And, you know, like that's, you know, what a child was a baby and then they were in like third grade. Yeah. So, you know, I just have like two more questions for you. For people who love this book, 
What are some other books you would recommend to them that are in conversation with this? Um, one of the books that to me was like, I loved it. And therefore, it was a real hurdle for me to write this book because I was like, why does the world need a book from me when this other book is already in the world? <laughs> what is it? It's Here For It by R. Eric Thomas. He's been on the podcast. We love Eric. He's the greatest. We love he Eric. Was, and, and you know what? When I got the book deal, I early on called him. I mean, he and I had talked before. Like, yeah. we know each other. Um, and I called him. And I said, one reason I'm so intimidated to write this book is that your book is in the world. And with that in existence, who needs whatever <laughs> I might write? And he was so encouraging and thoughtful and helpful and insightful and just wonderful. And then he gave me a lovely blurb for this book and also sent me an email that was like, this isn't the blurb. This is just what I want you to know about my reactions to the book. That was so wonderful and beautiful. So it remains like one of my favorite memoirs from the last five years. I think it's been, yeah. Um, 2020, I believe it came out. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Here For It by R. Eric Thomas. And another book that, I don't know if I would say it's in conversation with it, but it still sits in the kind of quasi-memoir category, and I just adored it, was Why Fish Don't Exist by Lulu Miller. I don't know that. She is one of the hosts of Radiolab. She was one of the founding hosts of the podcast Invisibilia. Okay. And Why Fish Don't Exist, it's part memoir and also part biography of a scientist named David Starr Jordan. Okay. And then the book sort of evolves in a way that defies categorization and becomes about the dangers of categorization. And it came out in the height of the pandemic. I think it was 2020. And I just loved it so much. I recommend it to anyone. And I think it's a singular, beautiful read. Oh, I love that. I have yeah, to check it out. I, I recommend it. Okay. You know, as somebody who loves nonfiction, yeah. this is a book for you. Okay. Last one. If you could have one person dead or alive read this book, who would you want it to be? Oh, my grandma Sylvia. Okay. It's funny. That just popped into my head. I mean, she had a good long life. I believe that when somebody dies after the age of 90, you oh, shouldn't yeah. mourn their loss. You should celebrate the incredible yeah. life they led. But she's just such a character, mm. such a like delightful woman who um, had so many stories to tell. Um, and it was always so encouraging of me. I, love I, I would love for her to be able to read this book. I love it. Oh, this was so much fun. All right. Thank you, you for having me. You read the audiobook, I'm assuming. I do. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you for people, get the book, The Best Strangers in the World. It's out now. Get the audio or the physical. I know many of you are audio people, as am I. And I would have read the audio if I had it, but I had this before it came out and it was great. And you'll all love it. Get it where you get your books. Ari, thank you so much for being here. What a wonderful conversation. Thank you for having me. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us this week. Thank you again to Ari Shapiro for being my guest. And thank you to Joseph Papa for helping to make this conversation possible. Don't forget to listen on April 26th when Clint Smith and I discuss Ross Gay's poetry collection, Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude for the Stacks Book Club. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the Stacks Pack. Please make sure you're subscribed to the Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram, at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter, and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. 
This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 